Listener Production. In 2014, after spending a 15-year career working in corporate and government communications, Suzanne Legina decided to make a big career change. A passionate feminist and champion of young people, Suzanne became CEO of Plan International Australia in 2017. They're an organisation that is dedicated to advancing the rights of children, particularly of girls. Suzanne's own story of fertility struggles played a big part in deciding to dedicate her life's work to girls' equality. But what is it going to take for more people in the developed world to give up their time and their money for the purpose of international aid? Crises loom large around the world, but right now we're also facing a crisis of our own with the cost of living rising and most of us having less and less disposable income. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Helen Smith will join me to recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Suzanne Legina. Suzanne, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. You as well. I have been looking forward to having this conversation for some time and I want to get to the work that Plan International Australia does. But I do want to start with you, which can be a little bit uncomfortable for CEOs of organisations who are used to talking about the purpose of their organisation. But I'm going to force you to talk to me a little bit about you. Why did you choose to work in the space of rights and security for children and girls? It's a really good question. I I did some career coaching a few years ago where I looked at every job I'd ever had, like through the rear vision mirror, and there was a golden thread sort of running through it, which was I had pretty much always worked for something that really aligned to my values. And I I think I was brought up, my my mum was a cleaner in a hospital. My dad was a boilermaker welder. I'm the eldest of four girls. My dad's Italian and he was pretty strict on me. And so I felt like I had to pretty much fight um, in my family for my own rights from a pretty young age. And it also made me really empathetic to others. And as a young person, I got involved in this international student movement where we were working on apartheid in South Africa. And pretty much everything I've done since has been connected in some way to wanting to have some kind of positive social impact in the world. And I've got a particular feeling, I think, for children and young people because both I was a student activist myself and so I was trained as a leader as a, at a very young age and I remember someone saying to me, you know, you're now 16, you'll be like 46 before anyone will treat you again with as much regard as a leader. Wow. And that was kind of true. And so I've set out in my life, I guess, to work with young people and quicken that pace and say, actually, I think you have a really unique perspective, have leadership qualities now, how do I bring them? into the thinking of everything that we're doing because actually the world belongs to you and you're seeing it very uniquely and you're invested in the future even longer than me. And then for plan, I really came to it at a point in my life where I was pretty burnt out. I've worked as a chief of staff to a minister for for an entire term and you will understand that I had like the phone stuck to my ear for for four years. Politics will do that I had a little boy who was like entering high school and... I remember the the first few months after I finished that work, 
we went on a holiday and he said to me after a day, we were in Bali, after a day he said to me, um, I forgot that you could be fun and I realised that oh. I hadn't really been fun for a very long time. And I had decided that I had spent a lot of time trying to make issues not be in the newspaper, like fighting fires, trying to make issues go away, working with stakeholders on solutions. And I had decided the next job I do, I'm going to put things in the paper. I'm going to drive an agenda for the things I really care about, knowing what I know about how change happens. I want to use that for something I really, really care about. And that then I came to plan because they were looking, they said, we don't just work for children, we work with them and with young people. They had a focus on girls and gender equality, which really resonated with me. Two of my sisters had first had their babies. And so, and I'd been on IVF for 10 years trying to have another baby and it hadn't happened. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe that's not going to happen for me. I'm not going to have more children in my life, in my life. In, you know, they'll be in my life, but they won't be mine. And then it made me really attracted to plan. I thought maybe what the world needs is more kick-ass aunties who care about children and young people and who will be their champion, who will care about them and who will advocate on their behalf and bring them to the table. And that's how plan came to be the place that I sort of settled after that time because I, I kind of had this desire to, to work for something I really was passionate about and it kind of was healing for me too. And then you did fall pregnant again when you joined Plan. I did, on my last IVF attempt. Wow. You know, that kind of last ditch, this is the last time, we'll give it a go. I remember it because it was like the day before I left for Zimbabwe to visit our work and I went to Zimbabwe and I had to take all these injections with me and get special permissions, you know, to take injections. And no one really knew. I was going with my board. No one knew what I was doing. And I was spending days in these like terrible roads and four-wheel drives visiting the work that we were doing. And I remember thinking to myself, perhaps not the perfect conditions for, you know, conception, but thinking, man, if you're going to, if you are going to survive this, you're going to have to be tough. So whatever life throws at me now, it's either going to work or not work. And then I did, I got pregnant with Orla and had her the following year. And that just confirmed for me, to be honest, Having my own child in that way just made me want for all children what I want for her. It made it, in a way, it made the passion for me even more crystallised because I had access to all these privileged things, great medical care, safe conditions for birthing. I had access to support and knowledge about how to help her thrive and grow. I felt like everybody deserves that in the world and every child deserves that opportunity too. I know that you visited a maternal child health program in Southeast Asia quite early in your career oh. at Plan and that that had a really big impact on you. Can you tell me what you saw and who you met and how it's yeah. changed your approach to work? I was in rural Laos and we were visiting um, an area where children are typically quite stunted uh, because of poor nutrition. I was talking to this group of women and they were asking me questions through a translator. And they said, oh, do you have children? And I said, yes, I did. And I had photos on my phone of Orla. So I was, and, and I remember the trip it was the first trip I took. It was like a year after she was born. And I was hoping that I might be able to wean her off breastfeeding. So I was showing them this photograph and they were asking me how old she was. And I was saying, I don't know, 12 months. And I could see that they were 
talking amongst themselves like this didn't make sense and they kept talking. And I said, what are, what are they saying? What are they saying? And they said, can you answer the question again about how old she is? And I said, yeah, she's 12 months, she was born in April, etc." And then I realised they had all had babies on their hips. And I said, how old's your baby? And some of those babies looked very small. They looked like they were six or eight months old and they were, in fact, 18 months old. Yeah. And so what had happened for them is they'd seen this very healthy, thriving, chubby baby and they couldn't believe her age because um, they were looking at their own babies. And it was very stark for me, just that difference. And it was really interesting because that group of women were in a program trying to, they were trying to breastfeed for longer and to break really powerful cultural norms that said you should feed your babies this sort of rice water and starch, which is not nutritious at all, but does stop babies from crying when they're hungry. And in fact, wait for six months and then introduce nutritious solid food. And so it was a fabulous entry point to a great conversation about how hard it was not just to do it, but to do it in the face of resistance from their mother-in-laws, their own mothers, their sisters who were saying, this is what we do, this is what we've always done, why would you not do that? So it gave me that real insight into the work that we do is you try to shift you know, deeply held views and behaviour, it's really hard. And it often comes at a cost for people trying to do the better thing for their kids and the next generation. Well, that seems like a good place to pause for a moment on you and just reset for the audience about what Plan International does and what the role of Plan International Australia is. When you meet someone at a dinner party or a barbecue and they say, what do you do with yourself? How do you answer? It's always a really difficult question because I, I, I know that I use jargon, which doesn't make sense. What I say is I work for an international humanitarian organisation that works with children and young people all over the world. And then people often go, oh, right, what do you do? And I say we tackle poverty and discrimination wherever we find it. And we really work with communities to ensure that young people themselves and the children we work with are part of the solutions as well. Uh, we have this real focus on really tackling the situation for girls because they remain one of the most marginalised and vulnerable groups in the entire planet. You know, when I talk to people, I'll often use basic statistics, but the ones that stick in my head are, you know, girls have to be born first and in many countries they're not given the chance to born because once their sex is known, they're terminated. Rolf. In India, you have in the first two years these missing millions. They just cannot, they're children, girls who are born that cannot be tracked two years later because in any medical system, because they have been neglected. And you have girls still, and I say this one all the time, but, you know, girls in South Sudan who have more chance of dying in childbirth than completing secondary education. I kind of live in 2023 and I think to myself, how can this still be true? And how can I and the organisation that I work for, how are we going to build that groundswell of support to kind of really shift some of those attitudes um, and social norms and behaviours so that this is not a problem that is going to take hundreds of years to fix, but something that in my lifetime I could see dramatic improvements in? We've seen over the last decade or so in particular that Australia's aid budget 
has not been a thriving, giving well. <laughs> uh, line item, let's say. Uh, and I think it is a challenge for, for politicians who, no matter how much good they want to do and no matter how cognizant they are of the kind of challenges you talk about in the developing world, they are accountable to voters here in Australia and they will usually say, but once the door is closed and once someone incredible like you has left the room, but where are the votes in this? How do I convince constituents I should spend money on children and girls overseas over children and girls here in Australia? What do you say to them? How do you convince decision makers that this is somewhere Australia should be putting taxpayer dollars? Um, So what I would say is, well, if this is such a current topic, because it appears that we're very happy to spend billions and billions of dollars on submarines, for example, wow. on defence spending, which, you know, there are questions about whether they're the right technology and, and how they sit inside a defence strategy. But politicians don't blink an eye. They they see votes of that. So I say to people, you can spend, you know, I, I can't even use the numbers because the numbers just don't even make sense. 300, is it $300 billion? It's like, it's like numbers I can't even comprehend. You know, and that is a direct result of a whole lot of conflict, not just geopolitical conflict, but a lot of the conflicts that are emerging in the world are created by massive inequality, scarce resources, the massive movement of people as they try to find food or water or a safe place to be. It's a bit like that preventative health We could invest early in young people and children right now. The best thing you could invest in for stability in the world, for tackling climate change and for transforming societies and economies is girls' education. And at a fraction of the price, we could put every girl in the world through 12 years of quality education and that would be transformational. So help make that leak for us between the investment in girls' education and broader outcomes, not just in the areas that they live, but for, you know, reducing the impacts of dangerous climate change. Where, where is that link and why girls? So girls, what we know from all the evidence over decades and decades of time, this is World Bank data, it's not my data, is that when you educate a girl, they are more likely to also invest in their families rather than in Um, themselves. So there's this kind of thread that as you invest in them, they also invest in their children. And it's as simple as if they're vaccinated, educated, have access to water and sanitation, are able to marry uh, when they want and if they want, and if they can have their children if and when they want, they then in turn have this kind of virtuous circle where they invest in their own children, their own children's education, they contribute into their economies. They do in a generation change um, societies by the opportunities they give both the boys and girls in their families, ensuring that they're healthy, using that knowledge to ensure better nutrition, their children live at a healthier, they have more chances in life. It's like a virtuous circle. And so the connection to climate change is, you know, it's a combination. Women and girls are often at the front line of climate change because they're collecting water and wood. So that education that you can provide, that opportunity, I mean, women deserve to be in all the places where decisions are being made, but they're largely locked out in so many places in the world, including in our own country. 
Um, they influence the decisions that are taken. They bring that natural, their connection to the natural world to the fore of decision-making. They think more intergenerationally because they're of their connection to their care work. They also bring their knowledge of their own bodies and their ability to decide about their own bodies. They can decide when and if they have children and what safety nets they can provide in their own communities that don't rely on them having lots of children to do that. So for all these reasons, it's like a catalyst. I just feel like it's this like magic investment that we know about from the evidence. It's existed for generations in economists and sociologists and international development circles, government circles, but we are not matching that with the necessary investments. Instead, it's easier, I think, for us to kind of put some of these things on the never-never and what we could be doing right now that could really create like better outcomes, not just for the societies that are near us, but I think for us as well, because we we market into those places, we sell products into those places, we have the exchange of ideas and culture with those places. That's a benefit to us all. I want to ask about the experience of girls and women in times of conflict as well, because you've just spoken about the opportunity of investing in girls and and, and the opportunities that come from that, not just for her, but for her whole community. But in places like Afghanistan and Iran, just to, to name a couple at the moment, women are at the forefront of protest movements, but they are also the most under threat and their rights are the most under threat as well. Sometimes people say, you know, how do you stay motivated or um, where do you find hope? Well, I, I find it often in the people that we work with or partners in places like Afghanistan, like Iran, like South Sudan, like in all of these places I see, especially all women, but young women in particular, putting themselves on the front line of change. They're just not prepared to accept that they are a lesser person by virtue of their gender, and they want the freedoms to be able to participate in all the ways, but it comes at great cost. So you're seeing what's happening in Afghanistan where you've got girls locked out of education, can't move freely. Now there's, um, again, limits to their access to contraception. All of the societies that endeavour to control their people control women. And I think that's not an accident because they know how powerful they can be when they're unlocked. And so you see that um, very particular focus on girls and women and how they lock them out of decision-making, education, access to information, access to knowledge. And you see the resistance to it as well. The thing about Afghanistan that amazes me is people meeting in secret, continuing their studies, the solidarity of men who just won't go to university if they can't go there with their female colleagues. You know, the implications are so enormous, like that you wouldn't have a professional class of women, you couldn't go to a woman doctor, you just won't have that opportunity. In Iran today, I, I am struck, like people are putting up with enormous torture, physical abuse and conflict, but they are unrelenting in their commitment to this movement. And the question I ask is how do we amplify their voices and put pressure on our own governments to, to stand with them, to ensure that there is genuine regime change and that there is the necessary supports in country to ensure that that resistance stays alive. I'm inspired by that every day. I want to ask this next question in two parts. The, the first is that 
I'd love to hear about what Plan is doing at the moment following the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. I know that there are hundreds of thousands of children who were, were impacted by, by that disaster. Um, and I'm interested to know in what, what Plan's role is in, in the aftermath, uh, not just the immediate aftermath, but recognising, you know, we, you were just talking about education, but how do we get those kids back to school? But I suppose my, my second question that I'm hoping to, to learn from you about is how do we keep from feeling fatigued by this stuff when our lives are not affected in the same way? And I, I sound like a horribly callous person when I say that, but if you are living in a developed relatively safe country like Australia. You know, I am I'm not for a moment skipping over the devastating floods and fires that happen in this country, but um, I do think there is a sense of, of disaster fatigue, of you can only uh, rustle up donations and emotion to care so much. I, I have so many friends who say, I can't even watch the news anymore. It's just too much. So tell me about what work plan's doing in Turkey and Syria and how do we stay vigilant in our efforts to help despite the fact that sometimes it is exhausting. Yeah, so in Turkey and Syria, I mean, the great needs right now have are really in child and maternal health in supports against gender-based violence. We know that when conflict happens, you know, your normal protective mechanisms that are your family and your community get disrupted. Mm. You don't have your kids' helplines and all the other things that you might have to keep you safe. You might be separated from your family. You might be with strangers. Yeah. All of these things make it a much more vulnerable time for you to be a child or to be a girl. And then the other thing you're really needing is sort of spaces. I know this is you need safe spaces for people to process what they've lived through. That's cool. We call that psychosocial support, but it's really like it's processing trauma. And you, you can't process when you're still running no. and you're still scared and vigilant. You need to stop that, you know, fight, flight, fright response and be able to get people to be able to calm down, feel safe enough that they can start to. Um, sometimes they'll talk, sometimes they'll draw, but sometimes they will get professional help too to just process what they've experienced, what they're living. It's a really important part of the healing process and the sooner that it commences, the better, especially for children and young people in terms of their long-term outcomes. So they're, they're the kinds of things that we are really focused on in Syria and Turkey. People always think about, yes, food, shelter, water. They're all the basics. The bit that I really focus on is that next bit, which is how do you help people come out of that trauma response and start to heal and start to normalise their lives. So school becomes really important part of that too. Education and emergencies is absolutely essential and there are conflicts all over the world where children are just locked out of it. We need to be more adaptive in saying, if this is where kids are, how we educate them has to adapt. We have to be able to normalise that experience for them and ensure they don't miss out. Because acting in the present to deter the world from massive devastation, inequality, poverty and violence is kind of what makes the future inhabitable, is that we... And I'm not saying everyone has to be a humanitarian in the context that me and my staff are, but everybody can do something in their world, in their community. And I would be saying to you, don't lose your humanity. It's okay and very healthy to tune out from the news because the news is designed to make you, you know, we know the way the business model works. It's kind of designed to catch you in and to 
create this sort of response. Tune out of that. I always tune into who's helping. Like I look for the other side of the story. Who are the people doing good here? Who is responding? Isn't that amazing how generous people are? There is another side to this story and that's the part of the story we don't read about in the in the media, but it is the biggest story of humanity. It is the best story of who we are. We have to keep that story alive amongst people who would have us believe that we are individuals, that the world's cutthroat and dog-eat-dog. That actually is not our lived experience for the most part. We live at a beautiful, magical, amazing planet. And I think if we could keep hold of that humanity and that connection, both to the people in our own community, but into our international community as well, we can't be beaten. And I think that's where I find the focus has to be is just people want you to forget that those people are human. You you can't forget that. Remember that. They're just like you. They bleed like you. They have to make difficult decisions harder than the ones sometimes you've had to make. But feel that sense of compassion. Do what you can where you can. You can't do it all. Don't even try. But don't don't assume that your small actions don't add up to something. My organisation is fueled by the generous donations of very ordinary people who give us small amounts of money every week or every month. That is what actually fuels our work, you know, is that generosity and that kindness of people that just keeps showing up all the time. And in fact, all of our organisations are. That's how we run. We run on the kindness of others. And so I look at sometimes our balance sheet and go, it's not a number, that's, that's a measure of the kindness and the generosity of the Australian people, which I think is enormous. Suzanne, I think one of the great sayings in this space is, you know, in times of crisis, you look for the helpers. Um, You're one of those helpers, very much so. Thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Suzanne Legina. If you would like to find out more about Plan International or if you would like to donate, please head to www.plan.org.au forward slash donate. Don't go away. The Weekend List is up next. It is Weekend List time. Helen is here and everybody, we are recording this within 24 hours of Helen Smith's birthday. And she's got some birthday recommendations for you. I'm not sure if that works because your birthday might be at a different time, everybody. But nonetheless, Helen has birthday recommendations. What are they? Yes. Thanks, Jam. Um, so, yeah, it is my birthday weekend and my birthday week, as I like to say, even my birthday month. So I thought it would be a great idea to recommend free things you can get during your birthday or around your birthday. So, I love a freebie. Like, as you probably heard, bargains and freebies are my gist. They're exactly what I love. So the first thing is the Mecca Rewards Beauty Loop. So you always get a birthday gift with Mecca and it doesn't matter what level you are. You can be any level. Don't have to spend bunch. You always get a free gift with Mecca. I love it. The second one, the Boost Juice, the classic. We all love a Boost Juice. You can get your Boost Juice for free on your birthday or two days around it. Um, majority of these things, all you have to do is sign up to their loyalty programs, which are all free as well. You might just have to download an app or sign up to their emails, but hey, you get a free thing and then you can just unsubscribe if you want. And the next thing I love is crust pizza. You can get a free pizza from crust. I did not know this. So you can get that on your birthday. Hold on, hold on. Why are they giving free pizza? That's not good for the business 
model, is it? I don't, I don't know, but you can get a free pizza on your birthday, so I'm I'm all for it. I, I Googled it. it. I did my research. I've I've checked all these things that it's correct. You do. You can get your free pizza when you sign up to their rewards program or whatever it is. The last thing that I'm going to say that I was shocked, I was like, this is great. You can get a free shampoo from Just Cuts on your birthday. Like, all you have to do is download the app and you can get a free shampoo. That is, I love that. Love it, love it, love it. Uh, Helen, your passion for getting things for free or for a bargain uh, absolutely delights me and happy birthday for tomorrow. Folks, I am also recommending something that's free because, uh, well, it's not free because we are all taxpayers, which means that uh, when the ABC does something, all of us were part of it. Certainly wasn't free, but that doesn't mean it's not great. Uh, Some of you will know that my sister Mim Rizvi is one part of the Beanies podcast, which you can also find on Lister. They are also on ABC Kids and they've just dropped their new season. So if you've got small people in your life, um, your kids, other people's kids, or if you just like watching cute, funny kids videos, I highly recommend their new season that has just dropped. I'm going to give you some of my own personal recommendations. There's a song called Spaghetti. 10 out of 10, folks. Everybody loves spaghetti. And the various different uses that the beanies explore for spaghetti will have your five or six-year-olds uh, laughing until they wee. Promise. It's that level cute. I'm also a very big fan of the fancy cat episode. Anyway, I sound like I'm a small child myself, but I really like it. Helen's going to take over and uh, save me from my embarrassment of recommending entertainment for small children. <laughs> That still sounds great. I love the beatings. Um, The next thing I'm going to say is Celeste Barber's new show on Netflix. It's um, eight episodes, so it's really good, easy, kind of short watch. Um, It's a really fun watch too, and it's all about, it's called Well Mania. So it's kind of really made me think about the wellness kind of industry and how much influence it has over us, like on social media, on Instagram. And yeah, it's it's really fun. It pokes fun at it, but it also kind of makes you think like, yeah, wow, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a bit brainwashed by this wellness stuff. But yeah, it's, it's just a fun thing to do this weekend. If you don't know what to watch, definitely recommend that one. I am really pumped for that. I'm a big Celeste Barber fan. I know that Benjamin Law was in the writer's room who we've had on the briefing before, who is hysterical. And it was originally written, it's based on a book by Bridget Delaney, who is also a really fantastic writer. So I'm looking forward to that too. Folks, uh, one that you will almost certainly be aware of is that Succession is back. This is the final season. We have been told there is no more after this. I am so unbelievably pumped because I love this television show. I think it's one of the best things that we've seen in the last little while. And that meant I needed to do some pre-gaming. And if you too need to do some pre-gaming, then I have a recommendation for you. Uh, And that is an episode of The Drop. I've recommended The Drop podcast before, but I'm recommending a very specific episode. It's called Succession Premiere, Winners, Losers, and a Logan Roy Meltdown. It's with Osman Faruqi, Meg Watson, and Thomas Mitchell. And they unpack the season premiere. They discuss their favourite lines and analyse who came out on top and they are going to be doing that every single week. They also have an episode, if you skip back one, which is called Succession Season 4 Primer. Is it the best show ever? Which will just give you a real roundup and help you remember what happened last time. Get you up to date on the gossip from all the actors and the speculation about what this season holds. If you can't tell, I'm really, really excited. 
Folks, that's it for the weekend briefing today. Thank you so much for giving us your company. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, then download the Listener app. You can follow us there or you can, of course, follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.